Welcome to the Central Baptist Church Podcast. Located in the heart of Victoria, BC, we are a church that seeks to renew our community through the gospel. For more information, visit centralbaptistchurch.ca. The scripture reading this week is John 18, 33 to 38. So Pilate entered his headquarters again and called Jesus and said to him, Are you the king of the Jews? Jesus answered, Do you say this of your own accord, or did others say it to you about me? Pilate answered, Am I a Jew? Your own nation and the chief priests have delivered you over to me. What have you done? Jesus answered, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews. But my kingdom is not of this world. Then Pilate said to him, So are you a king? Jesus answered, You say that I am a king. For this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I have come into the world to bear witness to truth. Everyone who is of truth listens to my voice. Pilate said to him, What is truth? After he had said this, he went back outside to the Jews and told them, I find no guilt in him. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Well, we are continuing our Advent series, and Christmas is only a few days away. And in this series, what we are doing is uh, we've called it, Oh, Come, Let Us Adore Him, after the hymn that we just sang, the great Christmas carol. And the whole point is to look at some aspects of what God has done for us in Christ in order that in the sermon, and especially by the end of the sermon, we are saying to one another, Oh, come, let us adore him. That's the goal. So that's the end that I want to get to this morning. And so to start, though... I want to take you back to January 26, 2020. That was the day that the world was shocked to discover that the basketball legend named Kobe Bryant had tragically and suddenly died in a helicopter crash along with his daughter and the seven other passengers who were in the helicopter. Early on after that happened, there's a lot of questions. What happened in this event that this helicopter would just crash into a hillside? It was very foggy that morning. Everybody knew that, but the pilot's last radio transmission had said that the the chopper was actually climbing at 4,000 feet. But then suddenly, and with nobody could understand why at the time, suddenly this chopper that was climbing turned and descended sharply right into a hillside. There was no other transmissions. There's no transmissions saying any of anything about engine troubles, nothing about we're about to crash, just we're climbing at 4,000 feet and then nothing and the whole entire uh, helicopter crashed into the hillside. A year later, the National Transportation Safety Board released its report on the investigation. And they said that the main cause of the crash was that the pilot of the helicopter had experienced something called spatial disorientation. Spatial disorientation. That occurs when a pilot in a plane or in a, in a chopper is flying in really thick clouds uh, or in really thick fog, and it, it feels like they're inside a ping pong ball. This actually happened to me once on a minor level when I was skiing in a blizzard uh, without any trees around, and I literally couldn't feel which way was down because what happens is your inner ear, your equilibrium, somehow gets messed up from your lack of visual cues. So you're, as a pilot, you have, you have nothing to see. There's no horizon. There's no ground. There's no mountains. All is white, and somehow in in your inner ear, everything gets a little bit messed up. You experience spatial disorientation. And so what happens in that moment is that your ear, your inner ear, gives the impression that maybe the plane is climbing, when in fact it's diving. That you're going straight, when in fact you're banking hard and down to the right. And so that's what happened with the pilot of Kobe Bryant's helicopter, 
In the fog, he lost all visual references, no horizon, no ground. He experienced spatial disorientation, and he flew the chopper straight into a hillside. One lesson that flight instructors always teach their students is this. Don't trust your feelings. Trust your instruments. Don't trust your feelings. Trust your instruments. Now, a really astonishing thing has happened in our generation when it comes to how people view truth. In previous generations, people, really through the history of the world, people believe that there are fixed points of reference. That is to say, there are absolute truths that apply to all people at all times and in all places. In other words, to use the metaphor, we're flying through fog, but we can trust that the instruments, there are fixed points of references. There is a ground. There are mountains. There is a horizon. There is absolute truth. And you can go against it if you want but you will crash even though you're going through the fog. So, for instance, one of the most obvious ones would be that God exists. That's a massive truth that has huge implications for all of life. Other truths would be there's a place called heaven. There is a place called hell. There is such thing as right. There is such thing as wrong. And so people believed that there were these fixed points of references, and they flew their lives, so to speak, based upon these fixed points of reference. It helped them to fly through the fog of life. But speaking generally, our, our generation has now rejected the idea of absolute truth. So that you, you get phrases like, well, you just live your truth and I'll live my truth. Or what's true for you is true for you and what's true for me is true for me. And that works great when it comes to choosing ice cream. No problems. Your truth can be your truth. My truth can be my truth. But It causes a lot of confusion when it comes to all kinds of other areas. Life is like flying through fog. And in our generation now, people are trying to figure out, how do I fly through the fog of life when I don't believe there are any absolute fixed points of truth? All kinds of questions begin to come up. How do I I think about what happens when I die? Uh, What is the meaning of life? Is there a God? And very importantly, how do we define what is right and what is wrong? As a generation, there's so much confusion for us on this. We're flying in fog. We're trusting our feelings to try to guide us and lead us through the fog of life. Into this cultural fog, though, comes The message of Christmas. And I'm going to say to you this morning, the message of Christmas is such good news for a generation that is flying in fog, trusting our feelings, unsure of how we should fly into the future. Such good news for us because the message of Christmas says there is fixed points of reference. There is such thing as truth, and you can know it. It's not something that is unknown. It's not something that is so hard to discover. You can actually know what the truth is, and you can fly safely not only through life, but through death. It all has to do with the message of Christmas. 
So I want to do three things with us today. We're going to be digging in today, just so you know. And I haven't preached in two weeks, so I'm ready and I'm raring to go. So first of all, I just want to understand the message of Christmas from what we're talking about this morning. Then we're going to spend most of our time applying the message of Christmas to all kinds of various areas of truth. And we'll just wrap it up in just a few minutes at the end as I'm going to ask us to decide about the message of Christmas. All right? So here's the first thing I want to do. I want us to consider uh, the first point, which I'm calling understanding the message of Christmas. Understanding it. Here I want to show you why Jesus' birth into the world is such good news for a generation that is flying in the fog. And to do this, I actually want to go to Jesus' trial. Because at his trial in John chapter 18, he talks about his birth. He connects the two. And so we're going to go into John 18 this morning. And Pilate's primary concern when he's got Jesus on trial before him is this idea that Jesus might be a king. And and this is how the people are trying to get him crucified. If you want to get someone in trouble, when you live under an empire with an emperor, just say someone's a king. Because guess how the emperor of Rome feels, or the Caesar, guess how he feels about rival kings? Not great. What happens to anyone who tries to be a rival king? You're finished. Nobody competes with Caesar. And so this is getting Jesus into a lot of trouble. This is why he is on trial. And Pilate gets right to the point in verse 33 when he says this. We read that so Pilate enters his headquarters again and called Jesus and said to him, Are you the king of the Jews? Are you? Jesus then explains to him that his kingdom is not of this world. And Pilate thinks this is a little bit bizarre. What are you talking about? And so in verse 37, Pilate says this. Then Pilate said to him, so you are a king. Jesus answered, you say that I am a king. Jesus just refuses to get trapped by what's going on. But then Jesus says something very provocative. Here's what he he says. For this purpose... I was born. That's Christmas. And for this purpose, I have come into the world. That's Christmas. To bear witness to the truth. Jesus says there is a reason, there is a purpose for his birth. But then he goes even farther. He, he actually says something that there's a reason why he has come into the world. And he doesn't mean that just generically like when we say a new baby has come into the world. That's not what he means. He's using it in a different sense. To say that you have come into the world assumes that you existed somewhere else previously, before you were born, and you have come from somewhere. Jesus is saying he left the place where he previously existed, and he has now been born. He has come into the world. And all through John's gospel and throughout the New Testament, it's emphasized that Jesus is none other than the eternal Son of God who existed eternally with the triune God, with the Father, and with the Holy Spirit, and that he now, the eternal Son of God, has come into the world, put on human flesh, and become the man who is named Jesus. And so in John chapter 1, we read of this Jesus. He was in the world, and though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. So the Bible teaches that 2,000 years ago, the King of glory, the eternal Son of God, left his eternal realm to come to this earth. On that first Christmas day, the creator of all worlds came and took on human flesh 
That's the message of Christmas, of course. But here's the question. Why did he do that? Why did he put on human flesh? Why would the eternal Son of God do this? Why would God become a man? Jesus answers that. One of the reasons why he came into the world in our passage. Here's what he says again. Next slide. For this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I have come into the world. Why, Jesus? What's the purpose? To bear witness to the truth. To bear witness to the truth. So Jesus is saying, yeah, I'm a king. My kingdom is not of this world, but I am the king. I am invading this world. My kingdom is invading this world, but not through violence, but through truth. The Bible declares that the truth is what we need most of all because as a human race, we're flying through fog. We're trusting our feelings, and many of us are crashing. This is not the way that God created the world originally. When God created Adam and Eve, if we could continue that metaphor of flying, Adam and Eve were flying through life in a bright, clear, sunny day. Uh, They could see where the ground was, see where the mountains were, see the horizon. In other words, they understood truth. They understood that God existed. They understood what it meant to live before him. They could see all things clearly. But on the day that they sinned, the entire world became shrouded in a thick fog. So that now we all are flying through fog. We are all not sure of all kinds of things. We are all experiencing spatial disorientation. We're not really sure what is true and what is not. And this, (laughs) this is why Christmas is such good news. For it declares that rather than let us crash, God became a man for what purpose? To teach us the truth. To teach us, as we're flying through this fog, there are fixed points of references. Here's what they are. Here's where they are. This is what you need to know. This is the message of Christmas. So to a generation flying in fog, this could not be better news. To to you, if you're trying to figure out answers to life, if you're confused, and listen, there are so many opinions out there, aren't there? How do you figure out all between all these different beliefs that people have? How do you know? Well, if God has become a man... And spoken to us, now you have the ultimate determiner of truth. Because listen, it's not even just simply that Jesus tells us the truth. That is what the message of Christmas is. It's also that he is the truth. So since Jesus is God, the eternal son of God, he is the embodiment of truth. That's why he said, I am the way and the truth. I am the truth, is what he says. I am truth incarnate. I am truth embodied. When I walk around, when you watch me, you are watching truth. When you listen to me, you are listening to truth. Every single word that comes out of his mouth is truth. Unlike the devil who we we read, Jesus says he is the liar and the father of lies. And when he lies, he speaks his native language. Jesus is the opposite. I am the truth. And all that comes out of my mouth is truth. Everything that I say is truth. And when I speak, I speak truth, for truth is my native language. So the message of Christmas then declares that Jesus came into the world to teach us the truth so that we would not crash, so that we could fly safely through the fog of life. So despite how foggy this world is, despite how many opinions there are on all kinds of different things, despite how unreliable our feelings are, you can know absolute truth 
as you listen to the man named Jesus. So if that's true, I mean, just ponder on that for a moment. All the confusion, all the different opinions, and there is a voice that can cut through all of that and give you the truth. Wow. Oh, come, let us adore him. Christ, the truth. So now with that as a foundation, let's get into really the practical stuff now. And I want us, after we've understood the message of Christmas, I now want to take some time in applying the message of Christmas, in applying it. And here I want us to see how Jesus' birth, how him coming into the world, allows us to fly safely through some of the biggest questions in life so that we don't have to just rely on our own feelings, which of course are subject to change all the time. Very important that we have this voice. I think we can see why our generation needs to hear this message so much because we're a lot like Pilate as a generation. And when we look at Pilate's response, we can see also the response that so many of us have. So this provocative statement that Jesus made, it stops Pilate in his tracks when Jesus says, this is the reason I've come, to testify to the truth. And then Pilate says these words in verse 38. What is truth? Pilate asked. Now, the Bible does not tell us what tone Pilate used when he asked that question. So we're kind of left to speculate. I mean, did he say it with kind of a a scornful ridicule? What is truth anyways? There's no such thing as truth. Did he say it like that? Did he say it maybe with a a sense of despair? Ah. What, what, what is truth anyways? I mean, I've investigated all these philosophies and religions, and I just can't figure out which one is right. Or did he maybe say it with a kind of a dismissive laughter? <laughs> what is truth? I mean, everyone has their own opinion on truth. Everyone's right and everyone's wrong. Who can know? Or maybe, perhaps, did he actually say it with a sense, a tone of sincerity? What is truth? I'd really like to know. We're not sure. What we do know, though, is that Pilate never waited to hear Jesus' response. Oh, what a a time when he just should have paused a little longer. Oh, what would Jesus have said if, if Pilate had looked at him and said, What is truth? Jesus, go ahead. Wow. Might have, might have just said, Jesus might have just said, I am the truth. Maybe that's what he would have said. He doesn't get a response, though, because Pilate never waited. He evidently considered that Jesus was just some impractical philosopher or religious leader or something like this. And so we read this in verse 38. After he had said this, Pilate, that is, he went back outside to the Jews and told them, I find no guilt in him. It's here, then, that Pilate shows his true colors, Even though he finds no fault in Jesus, he turns him over to be crucified. In the end, Pilate is so much just like every single person living on the west coast of British Columbia today. He's got two kind of main things that drive him as as he thinks through life. On the one hand, he's what we might call a pragmatist. A pragmatist is somebody who just does what works for the situation. He's got this situation. Seems like it could be cleared up if we just kind of take care of this. All right, I don't find any guilt in him but I'll just turn him over anyways. It's what's going to work for the situation. It's not about what's true. He's going by his feelings and what works in this moment. He's also what you might call a relativist. A relativist is somebody who's like, well, 
there might be a truth, but we don't really know what it is. The Jews think he's guilty. I don't think he's guilty. But putting some pragmatism into that seems like the best solution just to end this whole situation is just to kind of do whatever I think is right in this moment. The great irony, though, of Pilate's question of what is the truth, the great irony is that the truth stood right in front of him. In Isaiah 59, God speaks about the corruption of culture when he says that truth has stumbled in the public squares. Or other translations say, truth is slain in the streets. It's describing a a culture where truth is ignored, relativized, or rejected. There's lots we could say on that for our current situation, but right now I just simply want to say, 2,000 years ago, quite literally, that verse became true. For Jesus, the truth did stumble in the public squares when he tried to carry his crossbeam after being tortured. Jesus, the truth, was slain when they pierced his hands and his feet. And so it is with us today. The loss of absolute truth in our day has left our culture in a state of confusion. We're flying in the fog, and you can see how confused we are as a generation. We just start to look at all kinds of different uh, questions of life, important questions of life. So what I want to do now, and this is the bulk of our time, is to apply this idea of truth, this idea of Christmas to some of life's biggest and most important questions and try to show us some fixed points of reference to help us to guide, to fly through the fog of life. All right? So here's the first one. Since Jesus came to testify to the truth, we can know the truth about God. We can know the truth about God. On this most fundamental and primary point, of course, this is where there's so much confusion in our generation. Does God exist? Are there millions of gods? Is there just one God? Is God an impersonal force like in Star Wars? Is God the tree? Is God my, am I God? All these questions come down. And of course, how you answer the question of God is going to determine almost everything else that comes right after that. If there is one God, what is this God even like? The late theologian R.C. Sproul was once traveling on a train, and he was having dinner with uh, two women who were sitting at the same table as him. One was younger, one was older. And uh, the younger one started telling the older one how for the last two years she had been uh, part of this kind of uh, conference group uh, with a meeting together, and she'd been receiving all this instruction in New Age philosophy, all kind of the modern uh, people who teach, like Eckhart Tolle and uh, all these kind of New Age uh, philosophy teachers. And she was explaining to this older woman how after two years she had come to the most incredible discovery. She said, after tears, I've learned that I am God. And Sproul was sitting there, remember he's a Christian theologian, he was sitting there minding his own business, and as she was speaking, she kept glancing up at him to kind of gauge his reaction to all of this, and she finally just turned him because he wasn't saying anything. I can imagine what was going on in his head. She finally asked him, what do you think? And Sproul said to her, this is the only time I have ever sat across the table from God Almighty. <laughs> and she kind of she giggled. She knew it was kind of funny. And then he actually got serious and he said to her, do you really think that you are Almighty God? She kind of looked down for a second and after two years of training, she said, well, no, not really. 
Our generation has a million answers about God, almost all of which contradicts each other. And on this most primary, this most fundamental <coughs> issue, Jesus brings clarity. Jesus brings us to understand, to know. In Jesus, we learn that there is only one God and that you are not him, I am not him, the tree is not him. We are all part of his creation, but this one God made all things, including you, including me. And this one God we have turned our backs on, we've not given him the worship that is due to him as our creator, but rather than destroy us or push us aside, this God has demonstrated his character, his loving character in sending his son into the world for us to die for our sins in order that we might be reconciled to him in order to spend eternity with him. What a good and what a gracious God. And so I ask you, do you believe this truth? You're flying through the fog. One of the big questions of life is, is there a God? And if so, what is that God like? You've heard what Jesus says. You can learn a lot more. Do you believe this truth? That there is a God who created you and whom you need a Savior in order to be reconciled with? Do you believe this truth? Second, since Jesus came to testify to the truth, we can know the truth about where we came from. Again, of course, past the past 150 years or so, it's been very common to believe that there is no God and that the universe exploded out of nothing. And again, this has brought tremendous confusion to us. And of course, the most fundamental, most confusing thing about it all is that something cannot come out of nothing. Self-creation is a contradiction in terms. The universe cannot create itself. It's like the, the rabbit out of the hat trick, except without the rabbit, without the hat, and without the magician. Something cannot come from nothing. So where did all this something come from? On the question of origins, our generation is flying in fog. We're still searching for the answer. We don't know the answer. But in Jesus, truth incarnate, truth who has come to speak to us, we can find out that answer. And the simple answer is, you were created by God. That you are the special creation of God. You are not just a speck of dust floating in the universe, a meaningless speck that came and will one day be gone and be forgotten and mean nothing. No, you are created in the image of your creator himself. Everything was created by this creator. And so this call then of the Bible is, you came from him, you're meant to know him, Give your life to him. Worship him. Learn who he is. Learn what it means to be human. For he made you. He knows how human life works best. And he will show you what it means to be the human being, to live the life that you have always wanted to live. Do you believe this truth about origins? Jesus' truth incarnate came to testify, to tell you of where you came from. And he tells you, you are a special creation of God himself, that you have sinned, but God will bring you back to himself if you give your life to Jesus Christ. Do you believe this truth? Third, since Jesus came to testify to the truth, we can know the truth about the meaning of life. See, we're tackling all the impractical little topics today. 
You know, just the little ones. No, these are the big ones, right? The meaning of life. Since as a generation, we've been confused about where we came from, it makes sense then that we're confused about what the purpose of life is, what the meaning of life is. It's no wonder that we struggle with this kind of stuff. You see, if you truly believe that you came from nothing and that one day all things will become nothing again, then it follows that in the middle, Everything is nothing as well. It might be here for a little bit, but one day it will be gone, and so there is no ultimate purpose. You can try to create purpose in the middle, but there is no ultimate purpose to anything that you do in life at all. Even the great, greatest atheists of our day, let's just quote Richard Dawkins. I've given you this quote before, but it bears repeating. He's honest enough to admit this. He says, there is at bottom no design, here's the word, no purpose, No evil, no good, nothing but pointless indifference. We are machines for propagating DNA. It is every living object's sole reason for being. So here's the most famous atheist of our day. And what I appreciate about this quote is he's being honest. He's saying, look, if we came from nothing, we are only here to propagate our DNA, to have kids. So if you're done that, you're kind of done. And if you haven't done it, that's your sole reason, evidently, for being. But he's saying, if there is no God, if we did not come from God, there is no purpose. You must come to grips with this fact, is what Dawkins is saying. And so others, as they've thought about this, another famous man, Albert Camus, uh, a French existential novelist, he says, thinking this through logically, again, I appreciate the logic, he says that the end goal of all this, if you come to the very end of it and think it through logically, he says the only question that you must consider if there is no God and life is ultimately meaningless is why haven't you committed suicide? Now that sounds harsh and we'd never promote suicide. don't hear that at all. But what he's saying is, as soon as you say, I'm going to live today and find meaning in my life, but if you say there's no God, now you're, you're, you're you're confusing these things. If there's no meaning in life, and then you're saying there's meaning in life, you're living in a contradiction of terms. It's inconsistent. You're not being consistent with your worldview. And so he says, you've got to consider that question. So how do, you, how do you think that kind of thing through? So Dawkins and Camus, here's the point though. Every single one of us lives as if life has meaning, don't we? We all do. Every, you live as if life has meaning. You believe your life has meaning. Otherwise, you wouldn't get up in the morning. You wouldn't do all the things that you do. So how does that fit then if you also believe that there is no God and there is no ultimate meaning to life? People want meaning. And yet on the other hand, they say, we don't believe the universe has meaning. These things are very confusing. How do they fit together? So this is our, our generation again. It's flying through fog. I think the, the singers, the poets, and the artists, they're always the best at expressing this in ways that kind of connect with our hearts. One great example of this, I think, comes from modern art. Uh, for Heather and I's 10th anniversary, we went to, I took her on a surprise trip. Sorry, guys, this is going to raise the bar for you. Took her on a surprise trip to Paris and London for eight days. It was great fun. Uh, we went to all the kind of great museums, went to the Louvre, and then, of course, when we went to London, we went to the Tate Modern Museum. What a contrast between the eras of art, right? If you've ever been to Tate Modern or any type of modern art museum, I didn't really understand a lot of it, but I was interested to learn. And so I got the guide in the museum or some sort of guide that I had, and it had the top 10 things you're supposed to see in Tate Modern. So I thought, okay, I got to make sure I go and see these top 10 uh, highly recommended pieces in the museum. And one of the very top pieces was one by a man named Lucio Fontana, and it was entitled The End of God. As a preacher, I wanted to see that. What is this end of God? Here it is. 
You ready? So I stood before this and I said, I'm trying to understand. I really am. So what you're looking at, if anyone's on the podcast and doesn't get to see this, what we have is a canvas. There's no paint on the canvas, but a razor blade has slashed a, a, a line down the middle of the canvas. I didn't understand it when I was there, but then I started reading some history on modern art, and one of the people that was most helpful for me was a man named H.R. Ruchmacher, and he was uh, the chair of art history at the Free University of Amsterdam. What he points out in his book is he says, art is not all just for decorating purposes. I mean, you like that in your house and stuff, but art is one of the primary ways that people express their values and their beliefs. This is how we do it, through art. The artist is a preacher, They just preach not usually through words. They preach through visual symbols or images or sculptures or whatever. Many people kind of bypass modern art saying, I just don't get it. But it is actually one of the great keys to understanding the generation in which we live. Because art embodies how people think. So in tracing how we got to modern art, if you've been to somewhere like the Louvre and you've seen other places or if you've seen the Mona Lisa, whatever, and then you go to Tate Modern, it's such a contrast. And Ruchmacher shows that this is all because of a massive shift in the way people thought a few, a few hundred years ago during the period of which we call the Enlightenment. And in the Enlightenment, the idea was get rid of God and human reason. Human thinking is now going to become the supreme thing uh, in life. And so, of course, when you do that, if you get rid of God out of it all, you must come to some conclusions. And one of the biggest conclusions is there is no absolute truth. We make it up as we go. There is no ultimate meaning in life. There is no ultimate truth. There are no fixed points of reference. We as human beings are flying through the fog, and we got to figure it out as we go. Because if there's no God, then those other things cannot exist. So here was the trouble then when artists wanted to make art. If you put one drop of paint on a canvas, you're saying, I'm trying to have meaning. But how do you create meaning through art if life ultimately has no meaning? And so the artists were really struggling with this during that era. And so Fontana then took his razor blade and he slashed the canvas. And in that action, he was declaring, first of all, there are no absolutes that I have to obey or follow. It's the end of God. I don't have to do anything so I can slash at this. That's what he's saying on the one hand. But on the other hand, he's also expressing despair over a life without any ultimate meaning. How can you put paint on a canvas and create meaning if there is no ultimate meaning? And so in despair, he lashed out and struck the canvas with his razor blade. What a different idea to what Jesus says. To a world searching for meaning, Jesus comes and says, I have come into the world in order that you might have life and have it to the full. I will show you what it means to be human, what it means to live in community, what it means to know your creator. This is why I have come. I want you to know all this meaning. There is absolute meaning. There is purpose for your life. There is a God. These are all the things Jesus came to show us. This is the good news of Christmas. To a generation that is struggling so hard with what is the purpose of why I am here, I talk with many people struggling with mental health issues, and there's many reasons for mental health issues, but just one would be, I don't know why I'm here. I don't know why I'm on this planet. What is the meaning of all this? And the good news of Christmas is Jesus comes and says to you, 
I have come to testify to the truth. And part of that truth is you were made by God and he wants to know you and teach you what it means to live life to the full and to be with him forever. Only in God will you find the ultimate meaning that you are looking for. Do you believe this truth? Let's do two more. In the fourth place, since Jesus came to testify to the truth, we can know the truth about right and wrong. Again, on our, in our generation, we are truly flying in the fog on this one. We're feeling our way along. What's true for me is not true for you, and we're very inconsistent. We want to be moral relativists. That is, there's no absolute truth of right and wrong. When it comes to things like who you get to sleep with, but nobody's a moral relativist when somebody breaks into their car. Then we believe in absolute truth. It's always wrong to break into someone's car. But on other things we want, so we're, we're, we're inconsistent. We want to not say there's no right and wrong when it comes to certain issues, but absolute right and wrong when it comes to other issues. But as Dawkins has said, ultimately if there's no God, there is no evil, there is no good, but then, ironically, Dawkins himself goes on to say it's evil to raise children to know God. So it's just an inconsistency all the time. It's very confusing. Which is it? Are there such things as absolute standards of right and wrong that apply for other nations, not just Canada? Are there absolute standards of right and wrong that will, were, were true 3,000 years ago? And if we live to, if Christ doesn't return before 3,000 AD, they will still be true then? Is that, or are we just kind of like our culture determines our own truths, you determine your own truths? Which is it? Are there absolute truths, or are we just going to make it up as we go along? A little while ago, here's a, it's a provocative example. It's a, well, you'll see. And a, a well-known Ivy League professor named David Epstein was charged with a single count of incest. It was discovered that he had been having a sexual relationship with his 24-year-old daughter. The vast majority of people in our culture would say that is wrong to do. Our laws say that that is wrong to do, and that is why he was charged. But a secular writer named William Sailton, not a Christian at all, wrote an article, and this was the title on it. Just think this through. He says, if homosexuality is okay, why is incest wrong? So he's raising a good question. Our culture, of course, says... Of course, a homosexual relationship is acceptable. Love is love. And it's an act between two consenting adults who are not hurting anyone. And so what Sailton then said was, David Epstein and his daughter were also consenting adults who weren't hurting anyone. Love is love. Why can't they do that? Sailton is asking why our culture can say the one is right and the other is wrong. And where he's pressing into is, again, this confusion so how should we think this through? If we reject absolute truth, why can't you sleep with anyone or anything you want? Why can't you have four wives? We could get, go on this for a while. This could get very graphic, as you can imagine. Why can't you do all those things if there are no absolute truths? So why now are we making these standards on the one thing and not on the other? And what he's pressing into is to say, look, we're being totally inconsistent on this. We're flying in the fog, and we can't figure this kind of stuff out. 
This is the confusion that happens when you reject absolute truth, when there are no more fixed points of reference for deciding what is right and what is wrong. So again, the message of Christmas comes in with such good news that Jesus was born into this world and his purpose in coming, one of his purposes was to testify to the truth, to teach us there is right and there is wrong because there is a God who made us, who knows us, who knows how life works best. He teaches us about sexuality. He teaches us about all these kind of other things in order that we might understand morality We might understand what is right and wrong. We don't have to be confused anymore because our creator is the one who defines these things for us. And he's out for our good. Do you believe this truth? If not, think through the implications. For instance, of the illustration that we just gave. Think through all of it on how you decide what is right and wrong. Finally, let's say this. Since Jesus came into the world, we can know the truth about what happens when we die. Again, lots of confusion on this critical issue. Of course, some people say you need to die, that's it, lights out. Other people say you're reincarnated depending on how you lived your life and where you're going to come back as. Other people think you become one with the universe. Of course, this issue really matters again. If there is a God to whom we will each give an account, it really matters what you think about what happens after death. And of course, the average person in our culture would say, yes, I believe in God. Yes, one day I'll go to be with God in heaven. And if you ask them, how do you know for sure that you'll be with God in heaven one day? They'll say something to the effect of, well, I'm not perfect, uh, but I I haven't murdered anyone and I'm not Hitler. That's always the the famous, bring out Hitler, I'm not him. Uh, And so I'm sure God will kind of let me into heaven one day. But here's the question, how do you know that? Uh, How can you be sure that that is indeed the case. How do you know that that God is like that? I often hear people saying, well, I think God is like this. I believe God is like this. And my always question is, how do you know that? Well, I think he is like that. Is God exactly how each of us only think he is? Or could he be a being who might be different than how we think he is? The issue really matters for us. Jesus, again, answers all our questions on this. Jesus tells us that a day is indeed coming when God will judge the world. One day he will, we will all stand before him. There is life after death, and there are only two destinies. Jesus spoke of heaven, and he did speak of hell. The biggest truth that Jesus came into the world, though, was to say to us, you might be reconciled to God, that one day when you stand before him, if you ask me to be your Savior, you'll be forgiven, and you will not be condemned. The good news of Christmas is Jesus came into the world to testify to the truth, to say to us, the truth is you and I, are we are all sinners, but Christ is a Savior who can save us, make us right that we may never fear Judgment Day. And we got to know that kind of stuff right now. We can't wait. What if we die today? we got to get right with him today, lest we die and we have to stand before him in judgment. Do you believe that Jesus Christ came to save you from condemnation to bring you into the world to come to be with God forever? Do you believe that truth? Well, there's a whole bunch of truths to apply. A whole bunch of areas where our generation is flying in fog. But now we're being kind of brought to this point now, and here's the final thing we need to do in our final heading, deciding about the message of Christmas. Very quickly now, let's look one last time at our passage After Jesus told Pilate that he came into the world to testify to the truth, he said this in verse 37, 
Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. Jesus is inviting Pilate to listen to him explain the truth. Jesus is also challenging Pilate to say, whose side are you on? Are you on the side of truth, my side, or are you not? Ironically here, Jesus, the man on trial, is inviting his judge to become his follower. And the challenge of Christmas to each of us is that, will we be followers of Jesus, the truth? Will we give our lives to him? Which side are we on? Those on the side of truth listen to Jesus. This is how you know if you're truly a Christian. If when you read what he says, you say, Jesus, I'm submitting all my thinking, all my opinions, all of my life to what you say is true. That's one of the great signs that you truly are a Christian. And if you're saying, I don't really care about any of that. I'm going to make up my own truth. That's the sign that you're not on the side of truth as Jesus is saying that. And according to Jesus, there are only two options. The first option is to side with Jesus and let him guide you through the fog of life. And so that on the day he returns or on the day that you die, listen, here's what will happen. You will suddenly find that the fog has cleared away and you'll see reality for what it truly is. And beyond the fog, you will see beauty unimaginable, things you've never imagined before. And you'll fly into that eternal sunset singing, oh, come, let us adore him, Christ, the Lord who saved us that we might live in this beauty and see truth forever. The second option is to reject Jesus as the truth and to keep trusting your own feelings to get you through the fog. And if you reject Jesus, then on the day he returns or upon the day of your death, you also will see the fog clear, but you'll see it only long enough to watch the hillside coming up toward you. Don't let that happen to you. Listen to the good news of Christmas. That Jesus says to us, I've come into the world to bear witness to the truth, to tell you the truth. Come and listen to the truth. I will show you. I will open your eyes. I will enable you to get through the fog of life that you might land safely on the other side. That is why we sing joy to the world. We receive this great joy has come into the world that truth can now be known. We receive Jesus as our king, the one who can tell us this is the way to live. This is the what you need to understand. This is what God is like. Here's what right and wrong is. Here's what it means to live life to the full. What joy Christmas brings to us. For Jesus says to us, for this purpose I was born. For this purpose I came into the world to testify to the truth. Let's pray. I want to give you a moment right now. Perhaps God has been working in your heart and you're saying, I do need to give my life to Jesus who is the truth. I do need to follow for I want to know what it means to live life to the fullest. If that's you this morning, just bow in your heart and just say, Jesus, please forgive me of all my sins. Jesus, I submit my life to you. I don't want to trust my feelings and my own thinking anymore. I want to trust you, for I believe that you are the truth. Teach me how to live for you and save me from that great and terrible day of judgment to come. Be my Savior. Jesus, that is our prayer. We are grateful that you came into the world. We're grateful that you spoke truth to us. And though this confronts us in strong ways, 
It confronts us for our own good. For Jesus, we believe you are the truth and you will guide us safely through the fog of life. Do that, I pray, for each one here. Help us to live for you. Help us to know you. Help us to listen to your voice, to study your word, and then to obey it, for you are good. Forgive us when we don't believe that your words are good and we want to go our own way. Forgive us, Jesus, and turn our hearts back to you that we might follow you and discover that life and that life to the full. We love you. We thank you that you came into this world to testify to the truth. And it's in your name that we pray. Amen. If you were encouraged by today's message, be sure to rate us and hit subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. To experience other talks, videos, and gatherings, visit us at centralbaptistchurch.ca. Thanks for listening to the Central Baptist Church Podcast.